Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific. He had strong backing from the leadership of the party and the leadership of the major factions, but they couldn't get the rank and file to get behind Suga. And so, you know, I think he felt a little bit betrayed and decided he wasn't going to fight under those circumstances and he'd make way for a, a new prime minister. First thing this tells you is China's losing some powerful friends. They could have had, they could have had Britain and Australia working with them, but Xi Jinping has has done this. Second thing it tells you is, although there were misgivings in Delhi and Tokyo and Taipei and Canberra a little bit about Joe Biden and Democrats coming back, this is an administration that's not afraid to take China on. There should be no misgivings. This is not an administration that's going to go back to the new model of great power relations and strategic reassurance and make allies nervous. This, this is an administration that uh, we'll see what happens with defense spending and a few other things, but this is a White House that's not afraid to, to get tough on China. That's significant. I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner at the Asia Group. My co-pilot, Bloomberg TV anchor Sherry Yan, is off this week with the UN General Assembly in full swing up in New York and will be back with us our next episode. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome back to Tea Leaves, Dr. Mike Green. Mike currently is Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as Director of Asian Studies at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. Previously, Mike served as a senior member of the National Security Council in the White House from 2001 to 2005, shaping, overseeing, and executing U.S. foreign policy towards Asia for the president and the whole team. Mike, you're a, one of the foremost experts on Asia, on Japan in particular. I'm also pleased to say you're a senior advisor here with the Asia Group. So welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. It's terrific to have you. Thanks, Rexon. It's great to be on Tea Leaves again. The best part of being a senior advisor with the Asia Group. And there are a lot of great parts, of course. Thanks, Mike. So we're speaking to you and to our listeners at a really interesting time out in Asia, particularly in Japan, but more broadly. There are two major events that are unfolding that will have ripple effects across the region. The first is the race to be the next prime minister in Japan. And the second is the first in-person meeting of the Quad, US, India, Japan, and Australia, hosted here in Washington, DC by President Biden. I thought I'd first start with Japanese politics. The current prime minister, Prime Minister Suga, announced last month that he would not run for a second term as president of Japan's ruling party, the LDP, which in all instances meant he would not be the next prime minister. So let's start with Suga-san himself. Were you surprised by his announcement? I was a little bit surprised, to be honest, because he could have fought his way through um, the LDP presidential election which is September 29th, uh, and then, you know, the national polls, the lower house election, which is expected in October, maybe early November, when they dissolve the diet. He could have, he had a path to, to fighting his way through it, but uh, he chose not to. And I think it's because he was exhausted by COVID and all the rest of it, and, and I think felt a bit betrayed. He had strong backing from the leadership of the party 
and the leadership of the major factions, but they couldn't get the rank and file to get behind Suga. And so, you know, I think he felt a little bit betrayed and decided he wasn't going to fight under those circumstances and he'd make way for a, a new prime minister. Mike, when do you think this really changed in terms of the outlook for Prime Minister Suga? Was it the combination of the Olympics and COVID? Did this really sort of coalesce within the last month or two? So there's there's two ways to answer that question. The first is the set of issues you just raised. But the second is to step back and look at the patterns in Japanese politics. The patterns are a little bit worrisome, actually, because Japan has had strong prime ministers like Abe, Shinzo Abe before, Nakasone in the 1980s, mm-hmm. Koizumi in the 2000s, who really moved the dial on Japanese strategy, often ran from the right and used the alliance with the US to solidify their strategy in Asia and their political position, and were populist, you know, reached over the factions to the public and, uh, and won support. Nakasone, Koizumi, and Abe. And after each of those three strong leaders, Japan entered a period where the next guy couldn't get traction. And they, they had a mm-hmm. prime minister every year. And in the years after Koizumi, it was, it was when you were in the administration, Rexon, but it was pretty tough because you had a new prime minister every year for six mm-hmm. years. And so the worrisome thing is that's what this is about. It's, it's not about the specific issues of COVID or the Olympics or the economy. It's that here we go again. Japan's entering another pattern. This would not be good for the US-Japan alliance or Japan. And I don't know yet if that's where we're heading. That could be what's at play here. But the more immediate issues you raised are clear, are easier to identify because every leader in Asia has taken a, a hit from the politics of COVID. You know, Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan weathered it pretty well, but Moon Jae-in has dropped in the polls in Korea. Yes. Morrison is underwater in Australia. I think his coalition will survive. So in that sense, Suga is in good company from leaders in democracies in East Asia you know, that have taken a hit. But he had a few onside goals those guys didn't that made it worse for him. One was he, you know, Suga was a incredibly effective chief cabinet secretary, chief engineer for Abe. And yes. now is apparent to a lot of people that Abe was the one who made the big strategic decisions and Suga executed. And so Suga came in and was not able to communicate his big plan, his strategy for COVID mm-hmm. uh, in particular. And so, you know, it's hard to go from being the engineering officer to the captain on the bridge. And so Suga suffered there, didn't communicate well what the plan was. He also had some you know, missteps or his government did with respect to how Japan handled uh, vaccines and especially hospital uh, hospitalization. They were too complacent and Japan's hospitals were just not up to the task. So people could see that he looked like he wasn't in charge. When he came to power, the polls and newspapers asked, what's the most important quality you want after Abe? And the number one mm-hmm. quality people wanted was crisis management. And Abe and Suga together built a very strong crisis management system for Japan and national security to deal with North Korea and China and Mm -hmm. solidify coordination with the U.S. While you were in the Pentagon, you saw it yourself. They didn't build a comparable crisis management system for this kind of thing, for COVID. And so he's getting punished for that. And more so than, you know, his counterparts in Taiwan or Korea or Australia. Mike, based on everything you know, and, and, 
you know, your, your careful study of these past episodes in Japanese politics that you mentioned, what will you be looking for over when the elections happen? And I know there's a unique process in the party for selecting its next leader. But what will you be looking for to gauge, you know, are we headed into another period of political instability among Japanese leaders? Or will this settle hopefully quickly? What are the what are the milestones in your mind? That's a great question. There are four candidates running. And just judging from the number of votes they appear to have, this is a vote, an election within the party where about half of the voters are Diet members and about half are members of the LDP from you know, mm-hmm. constituencies. So there are four people in the race. And just looking at the numbers, right now the betting is that first position, although it's close, is former Foreign Minister Kishida. He's got support from the party in Tokyo, but less popular support in the country at large and less popular support in the party at large. Kishida is a steady, steady hand. He um, is more reassuring to the party bosses uh, because of that. In terms of whether or not he can have a long-term successful cabinet, the question will not be his inside game where he manages relations with the other party leaders well. It's his outside game. Is he going to be too boring for Mm -hmm. the public that, you know, got used to with Abe some pretty decisive leadership? Is he going to be too compliant with the other faction leaders, mm-hmm. in which case he may have the inside game right. He won't get undercut by the other bosses, but he'll lose popular support. That's his risk. So the second poll position right now, all this this could change, is Taro Kono, the former foreign and defense minister and now in charge of vaccine policy. Kono's got the outside game. He's more popular mm-hmm. in the polls. He's more popular with the non-sitting members in the diet, the LDP members out in the countryside and so forth. He's a maverick. He went to Georgetown. Uh, we're very proud of him at Georgetown University. He uh, He's funny. His English is fluent. He's, he's just a great communicator. He worked for then-Congressman Richard Shelby when he was at Georgetown mm-hmm. and learned a lot about politics mm-hmm. the American way. So he's great at that. He's not an inside game guy. His And he makes some of the senior party people very nervous because he tends to make decisions or announcements without checking with them first. And that's very un-Japanese. Japan has a phrase, especially in politics, namawashi. Before you announce or do something, go around and make sure everybody's okay. And there are a couple examples of that, Mike, when he was defense minister. Well, the most famous, of course, is Aegis Ashore when he announced, yes. uh, based on a quick phone call with Prime Minister Abe and no discussions with his counterparts, that as defense minister, he was canceling Aegis Ashore. That's a bombshell. So the public loves that. The, the party, and to some extent, the bureaucracy don't. So he's got the outside game. If he gets the... If he wins, first of all, he will put Japan on the map. He'll be the most interesting, funny, dynamic G7 leader. But um, the risk to him, the, the reason he might not be able to have a long-term, you know, multi-year premiership is that he may piss off important party bosses with the way he does stuff. Koizumi, when he was prime minister, had a similar skill at communicating over the heads of the party bosses and, mm-hmm. and getting in the media and standing on the world stage. But he always kept one hand carefully on the belt of the old, of at least some of the faction bosses. He was very careful about his inside game. People didn't fully realize that about him. I had dinner with him in a when he was prime minister in a in a ryote in an inn in Akasaka with with Maiko-san, geisha singing, very traditional Japanese politics. And he told me 
he always goes out with some key party bosses uh, at least once a week to drink sake. That's not Kono. Kono's all outside game. And Koizumi had a long premiership because he played the outside game, but he was careful to keep a hand on some of the faction bosses he couldn't piss off. So that's the risk for Kono and Kishida. Can they can, can Kishida do the outside game? Can Kono do the inside game? The other two contenders are both women, right now looking like they're in third and fourth place. Third place is Takeichi, Sanae Takeichi. She also worked for a member of Congress, Pat uh, from Colorado. I'm forgetting her name now. Uh, but a very liberal, very progressive member of the Democratic mm-hmm. Caucus, which is a bit ironic because she in Japan is now the right-wing candidate. She's mm-hmm. got Abe's endorsement. She's calling for increasing defense spending, doubling it to 2% of GDP. She's doing actually not badly in the polls because she gets the conservative right-wing vote, but I think that's about as far as she goes this time. She's positioning for the next or next, next run. And then Noda Seiko, who is kind of a perennial, she is mm-hmm. uh, in fourth place and probably is doing this to keep you know a good position for the cabinet. So watch Kono and Kishida this time. But Mike, I just quick question. Yeah. Why do you think... Abe has endorsed Takeichi? It's a really interesting question. So a couple of reasons. One is, although Abe, look, here's one really important point I have to make. All of them are basically going to follow Abe's grant strategy. Mm-hmm. They're very different on domestic issues, you know, gay marriage and things like that. But on US-Japan alliance, the quad competing with China, they're all basically going to follow Abe's strategy. So it's not like one of them is going to undercut the Abe legacy. That's not why Abe's intervening in my view. You know, one explanation is Abe has always had kind of a split personality. On the one hand, he's got this right-wing conservative side, and that's the Abe that, you know, criticized the comfort women agreement with mm-hmm. Korea when uh, the, the the one that Kono's father struck in, in 1993. Abe struck his own in 2015 because there's another side to Abe, the pragmatist strategic, you know, Kissinger-like player mm-hmm. on the chessboard in Asia, where he's very, very good. So 1993, he opposed an agreement with Korea to try to settle the comfort women issue that Kono's father uh, sealed as uh, chief cabinet secretary in 1993. He opposed that and, and, you know, and said Japan did nothing wrong to these women. You know, it was, it was pretty shocking. But in 2015, he struck his own deal right, uh, with Pakune. So there's both sides to Abe. When he's in government, when he is prime minister, the pragmatic side prevails. Yeah. Now he's out of government. He's just a sitting member of parliament. And so the ideological piece is coming through a bit. And that's why he's backing Takeichi. But the other reason is he wants to be kingmaker. And he yeah. very well may be kingmaker if this is a close race. And do you think you've laid out a really interesting sort of dialectic in your analysis with the inside game and the outside game. And the process, as I understand it, for the party election is the the, the rank and file vote happens first. And then, you know, there will be it will shift more to the uh, factions within the party, within the LDP. If you had to predict now, Mike, does the outside game or the inside game matter more for this election? So I think the inside game is starting to matter more. And that's mm-hmm. a problem for Kono. He could still win it, but there are two things that have happened that have slowed his momentum. One is because you now have two of the four candidates as, as women, that has diluted somewhat uh, Kono's appeal on mm-hmm. you know letting women keep their main names and things like that. So they've slowed him down a bit. 
And I don't know whether this is right or not, but there's a lot of suspicion that Abe and others, you know, got Takeichi and, and uh, Nona, the two women, to run in part to blunt Kono. And the other thing that's happened is, you know, Kono's popularity is because he's popular nationally. And when Suga was prime minister, in his final weeks, the LDP did internal polling, which showed they were going to lose 40 to 60 seats the way they were going. They'd keep their majority, mm-hmm. but they'd be really crippled. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who thought, God, I could be one of those 40 or 60 seats, thought Kono's popular. We should go with him. But after Suga said he was going to resign, the LDP party support went up between five and 10 points in the polls. So they're feeling a little safer. And uh, that's outside game, but but that that means you know Kono's lost a little bit of his rationale that he's he's a guy who can win in the polls. That's the trend right now, but it's a very fluid situation, and Kono could reverse that and he could win it still. But um, but it's kind of going Kishida's way as we speak. And so as we think about what's to come, within the next two weeks, we'll have clarity on this question, right? Yep. Well, so you you mentioned the two stage. Uh, way the LDP does these elections. And yes, the first stage, the popular, uh, not the popular vote, but the larger party votes, you know, members who are not in the diet of you know, prominent members of the LDP who like Kono more. Mm-hmm. If he can't win that one, if there's a runoff, that goes inside mm-hmm. and uh, he'll have a harder time. So Kono's, if Kono can't get it in the first round, it's going to be much harder for him in the second round because inside mm-hmm. the halls of the LDP, his the very thing that makes him popular outside, his maverick style, makes the insiders nervous because he doesn't consult with them. If I yeah. could advise him and we're friends, I'd tell him, you need to find a way to signal that you're that you're going to consult and listen with the party bosses without undercutting your public image as the maverick who will call it as he sees it. And Kuizumi did that, and Kono's got to show he can do it too. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier when we were speaking, from the lens of the United States and U.S. interests in the U.S.-Japan relations, the outlook, though, really is one where there will be more rather than less continuity, more of the sustained alignment between the United States and Japan on key strategic issues, security matters, the perspective on China. Is that right? That's right. If I were in the administration right now, I'd be looking at this race and thinking everything we're doing now on the quad, on defense cooperation, you know, it's all going to continue. It's not going to fundamentally change. We're, but we're going to have a different set of opportunities and challenges in implementation, depending on who it is. If we get Kono, mm-hmm. he's, he's going to be dynamic. We can do things in the G7 on the world stage and with the American public that will be really cool because he's such a creative communicator. And, and that's a good opportunity. But, you know, from time to time, as the Pentagon find out, he may surprise you. <laughs> if it's Kishida, if it's Kishida, you're going to think, you know what, we can, he, Kishida's a big fan of the Quad. He's very pro-alliance. Um, Kishida wants diplomacy. Kishida cares a lot about democracy. So maybe he's going to be a really good partner for the democracy summit. He's going to be very steady. And, and we got to move in that direction. If it's Takaichi, who probably won't get it, she's promised to increase defense spending to double it. She wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to double it politically, but it's going to go up. So there the opportunity is, this is great. Finally, Japan's going to have the the readiness, the sustainment, the, the training, the exercise, the budget to deter China the way we want. But she's a little spicy, so we're going to have to keep a, an eye on relations with Korea in particular. And Noda probably isn't going to get it, but 
you know, there's a lot to be said for Japan having its first woman as a prime minister in terms of how you address issues like women's empowerment in Asia. So I, I would look at this and say, look, every one of them we're going in the same direction. They each bring a little bit of complication, a little bit, but they also bring some really interesting new looks for Japan that we ought to take advantage of. And I think all four of them are going to are going to right away want to show whoever wins that they, that Joe Biden has their back. Mm-hmm. So there's an opportunity to really build that relationship. Mike, broadening the lens just a little bit and shifting, you know, and we will get to the quad, but in the course of doing so, want to touch first on the announcement recently of the new Australia, UK, US security pact that involves, in the first instance, this collaboration on submarines, but frankly, is much broader than that. I tend to see this as a highly consequential move that will have implications for our posture in the region, for the question of competition and rivalry with China, not just in the near term, but frankly, probably more impactfully as we look out over the years. I'd love to get your your initial thoughts, and then we can shift over to the quad. So the AUKUS, the Australia-US-UK agreement, I think tells us a couple things really clearly. And none of them are good for China, or almost none of them are good for China. The first thing it tells us is China has completely lost Australia and Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years ago, David Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, said he wanted London to be the renminbi outpost for China in, in Europe. You know, the Brits signed on to the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIB, without telling the Obama administration first. Mm-hmm. They were just, as one friend put it, look, the Brits got into Asia selling opium to the Chinese. They're basically opportunistic. And that's how Britain looked for a while. And at the same time in Australia, polls showed a pretty positive view of China on the whole. Australians were making a lot of money on China. This is an in-your-face to Beijing, and I think deliberately so by Morrison and Johnson, because China has been embargoing and punishing Australia especially for not towing China's line on COVID diplomacy and so forth, and they've really pissed off the Brits. And so first thing this tells you is China's losing some powerful friends. They could have had. They could have had Britain and Australia working with them, but Xi Jinping has, has done this. Second thing it tells you is, although there were misgivings in Delhi and Tokyo and Taipei and Canberra a little bit about Joe Biden and Democrats coming back, this is an administration that's not afraid to take China on. There should be no misgivings. This is not an administration that's going to go back to the new model of great power relations and strategic mm-hmm. reassurance and make allies nervous. This, this is an administration that uh, we'll see what happens with defense spending and a few other things, but this is a White House that's not afraid to, to get tough on China. That's significant. And on the defense side, as you were just suggesting, eight nuclear-powered Australian submarines roaming the Indo-Pacific, where the Chinese can't find them, in my view, resets, at least in the maritime domain, the, um, the power equation. China was building dual-use access bases in Djibouti and across the Indian Ocean, was looking at submarine bases in Vanuatu on the Pacific Island, was, was, you know, just recently, Chinese Surface Action Group was near the Arctic. They were moving out. And this is going to force them to think about the risks to them of that, the geopolitical risks, but also the vulnerability of their, of their, of their forces to a much more powerful undersea capability from the US, Japan, and now really Australia. The only thing is when I say now, we're talking 20 years for yeah. these things built. So in the long run, the French reaction is 
ferocious. The French knew they were losing this deal. The Australians mm -hmm. were really unhappy and told them that. Mm -hmm. France has gone to India and Indonesia and promised they will have a less militaristic approach than the Americans in Asia. I find that very cheeky. After all, the French were helping the Australians build submarines. I think this is short-lived. I think there's an election in France in five, six months. Macron's embarrassed. They've lost a $66 billion deal. They'll embarrass us, they'll punish us. But India's not going to leave the quad to help the French punish us. Indonesia's not going to, you know, China, China may try, but France is not going to align with China. France has concerns about China too. So the friction will get through. I don't think we needed the friction. I'm a little surprised that the administration didn't think through a little more how to soften the blow with France. It seems there was no thinking about that. To me, that says the administration's strategy is right, but the interagency process is a little broken. I was at the State Department the other day. It's pretty quiet. Political appointees mm -hmm. would have, you know, the, the, the assistant secretaries and stuff who would have thought through how do we soften the blow with France are not in place. And so there's a bit of an execution problem. But the strategy, as you say, is really consequential. It, it, what it says about geopolitical alignment and especially military balance of power. I think you've made excellent points, Mike, on this. I, I agree with everything, including the, the critique on execution. I do think, ultimately, as we have, if you look over history, we will weather the tremor in the alliance between the United States and France, um, as we did in the run-up to the Iraq War, and there are other examples. But, you know, it, it brings us to the historic in-person quad with uh, bilateral for Joe Biden and, and Morrison up in New York, bilateral here in Washington with the Indian prime minister, uh, short bilateral likely with Prime Minister Suga, and then, you know, really a, a quad construct that is building an agenda that is, I would characterize as quite affirmative around collaboration against COVID, public health, climate, economic and technology issues, supply chain. You know, this is not a, a grouping that is developing and identifying really, you know, an affirmative agenda of common interest. So that, that's my basic take, Mike. And, and, you know, in the time remaining, I'd love to hear sort of your clear-eyed assessment, you know, shortcomings, positives, and then where you see it might go. Could there be in the near future, an additional member or two, for example. So the quad first started when I was in the White House after the yes. huge tsunami in the Indian Ocean in 2004. And it was really an interesting experiment in government because it, it happened between Christmas and New Year's and, and half the U.S. government was on vacation. <laughs> and I was the lead in the White House. The lead in the Pentagon was an undersecretary in the, in the State Department was undersecretary. And when the tsunami happened, in less than a day, the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India agreed to stand up a joint quadrilateral task force. We'd never done anything like it. And, mm -hmm. and it was really quite remarkable. And then after New Year's, when senior secretaries, deputy secretaries came back, the whole process slowed down. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. But it, there was a logic to it uh, at the time of moving so quickly. We strategically, the U.S. and Japan in particular, wanted more of India. It was a whole premise of the Bush administration's Asia policy. We want more mm -hmm. of India in Asia. Any, any India we can get, frankly, just to maintain a favorable balance of power. And we need to show that the maritime democracies are defining norms and order and rules in Asia because we're the ones who help people. We provide public goods. So those two things came together and, and we did. I mean, the, the quad country saved 
thousands and thousands of lives. Abe thought this was cool and he wanted to make it a summit. But by 2007, 6, 7, all the politics changed. Kevin Rudd in Australia was very cool, let's say, on the quad. Fukuda in Japan was cool. Chris Hill came in uh, as the lead uh, in the Bush administration, very cool on Japan and the quad. And then Hu Jintao was being nice in 2007. Mm-hmm. He all kinds of agreements. Break, break, Xi Jinping, he recreated the quad for us by beating up everybody especially the Indians, by the way, with the, with the violence, violent, belligerent attack on Indian forces um, with clubs and chains and in the Himalaya mountains. So now the Quad is back as a summit. I think a lot of people are surprised it's a, the Biden administration that made it a summit, but, but it is. And I think it has strong bipartisan support and a real logic to it. I think it'll remain the four countries. Diluting these kind of groupings is not a good idea in terms of setting the agenda, but I think they'll move towards a la carte participation by, mm-hmm. you know, Canada, UK, of course, especially after AUKUS, maybe Korea, France, I think was primed to do it. I think we'll have to wait on France, the Netherlands, maybe New Zealand, depending on the issue, maritime security, supply chain, but the quad is not NATO. It is not a treaty organization. It's one of a series of cooperative frameworks we have with our bilateral alliances, People forget that we have a very strong U.S., Japan, Australia trilateral security uh, arrangement and infrastructure arrangement. Quad's just one of them, but it's the most pronounced because these are the four biggest maritime powers and powers that are not happy with China's coercion in the maritime domain. So it's going to be about public goods, vaccine distribution, and so forth. But these are four really powerful navies that if China pisses them off, it's going to constrain China's regional ambitions. And that's always in the in, in, in the back of everyone's mind. And that's exactly where we want it in Beijing. We want, I think, a reminder that this is not NATO. You want a NATO? Keep pushing us. I think that's a pretty important backdrop to our diplomacy. And so the summit is Friday the 24th is not going to have huge deliverables. They did that in the virtual summit, but it's going to show the quad is now a core feature of how these four countries do our strategy in the region. Mike, we're at time, and I wish we could go longer. The um, conversation is compelling in the way you are able to distill some of these key events, give a little color, share your personal perspectives on, for example, in Japan, of candidates whom I know you know personally. So I just want to thank you for joining us today. Terrific conversation. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Rexon. Keep it going. The tea leaves is great. And people can listen to my podcast if I can advertise, which Please. is the Asia Chessboard. And um, not maybe as high quality as tea leaves, but not that. <laughs> you can, hope you can join I aspire today. to the Asia Chessboard, Mike. <laughs> and I just want to thank all of our listeners and viewers. Please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.